Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the Personal Best Podcast, powered by Jets Australia. My name is Bart, and to my left is no one. Jacob's not joining me here today, team. This week is the biggest week on the Jets calendar, and Jacob's talents are needed elsewhere, for at least for this next hour for me. So Jacob won't be joining me today, but this episode's going to be a lot of fun. In this episode, I have seven questions about fitness that I'm going to answer today. These questions shoot around plyometric training, partial reps and full reps, sticking to a diet, the best carbohydrate sources, um, et cetera, et cetera. Best grip on the deadlift team. We're, we're going all over the world, all over the fitness world in this episode. So please stay tuned. For those that are new, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Um, our followers have been slowly increasing over the past few weeks. So if you are new, welcome to the Personal Best family. And the way we do things here is, is fitness. We want to get you in the best shape of your life. Now, before I get into these questions, I have a question for you. So Jacob has talked a lot about his kettle press down. That, that goes right back into our archives. But also his certain knuckle pulling exercise, which made me think, right? Everyone has, if you go to the gym... Everyone has a nuance. Everyone does things a little bit differently to the others, whether it's a slightly different grip or using a piece of equipment that maybe not what, what it's supposed to be used for. But everyone has their thing. I was doing an exercise today. It was a variation of a hanging leg raise. Never seen anyone do it before. But basically you're hanging from a bar, but there's a barbell in the rack and your upper back is resting against that barbell. And then you do your hanging knee raises from that position. It allows to give you extra um, extra range of motion, and it's really hard. I can only do four or five reps. But I call it the uh, the Walsh raise in my head. And I know you out there have a nuance on an exercise too that you do just a bit differently to others. I want to know what these things are. So in the show notes, you'll see this in the past episodes, there's a form. If you want to ask us a question for this show or if you want to send us a comment, or if you want to tell me what your nuance is on your exercise, hey, I want to know it. I want to know about it. And then me and Jacob will filter through them uh, in in weeks to come. Anyway, team, let's dive into question number one. <clears throat> question number one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jacob doesn't let me use the soundboard, so when he's not here, I, I dive in. <clears throat> question number one. How should I program plyometric movements into my program? Very interesting question. And plyos, they can be done in a number of ways. But firstly, what is a plyo? When we're talking about plyometric exercises, we're talking about deceleration and acceleration. So fast acceleration and then controlled and fast deceleration. Something like a box jump or one-legged bound, even um, uh, sliders or, or skiers to the sides. It's all about teaching your body to accelerate fast and de- decelerate fast as well. And what we're really doing here is expressing our power, uh, our power and our strength under control. So to train for power, we normally do high velocity or high intensity reps with very low volume. And what I see a lot with plyometric training, particularly box jumps, is a lot of volume, you know, set to 5, 10, 15, 20. Now, there might be a bit of value there if we're training for capacity and we're teaching our body to sustain um, impact over a long period of time. But if you're training plyos to get faster, to jump higher, to really fortify your joints. And then we want to be programming our plyos in low volume um, but high power and high intensity sets. So this might look like a box jump where you do five sets of three to five reps with about two minutes rest in between. And it's important that the rest is there because when we train for, for strength and for power and for speed, we want to make sure that we're fully recovering before we start the next set. 
If we're not, we're training at velocities that are lower than our peak. And when we do every set, we want to be hitting our peak velocity and peak power. And in fact, if you were to sort of take this a step further, if we should be stopping our sets when our power starts to dip. So if I'm doing uh, a set of five box jumps, and by the third jump, I'm not hitting the height that I did on the last two, my, sh- my set should stop there. So in summing up here, team, Plyos should be done with high power and low volume if you're training to fortify your joints and fortifying um, and really leveling up your, your, your power output, especially if you're training for your vertical. And if you do want to involve them in circuits um, or metcons or what have you, just be wary of your volume. I don't want someone who's never done a box jump before to all of a sudden do 80 of them within a five-round workout, if that makes sense, because their body isn't hasn't acclimatized to taking that that impact or that damage and what one more sort of word of advice here is um train laterally so a lot of the movements we do in the gym particularly when it comes to plyo movements we do in front of us and so we do it in the sagittal plane and then what we find is that we develop imbalances because we only train in this train but in this in this chain in this um in this pattern but all of a sudden if we start doing plyos and movements that that move through the transverse um um, movement pattern we're developing muscles that are underactive and that help balance us off so particularly for performance doing plyos laterally i think is a really cool thing to to include all right <clears throat> question number two are there any benefits to doing partial reps or a full range of motion reps the best yeah cool question and this is a debate that's sort of still going on in the fitness world and just like any debate in the fitness world that is between this and that, the answer is usually both. So what is a partial rep? So let's just say we're doing a chest press. Rather than doing the full range of motion where our elbows uh, are almost locked out at the top and we drop our elbows as low as we can to get full stretch, a partial rep might be cutting the end ranges short and doing a shorter range of motion. And the, the typical benefit here is time under tension. So if we rest at the top with our elbows locked out, there's less tension on the chest muscle. But if we bend our elbows a little bit and then just stay within that, uh, that, that um, range of motion, the tension will remain on the target muscle. Now, the, the funny thing is, is that the research often says the opposite. If we use a full range of motion, we're going to be activating that muscle more, even though we might be resting, quote-unquote, at the top with our elbows locked out. And so... Is there benefit to partials? There is. It can keep tension on the muscle a little bit more, but my go-to is 98% of the time we should be doing a full range of motion. The research says that, our function says that, and the reason for that functionally is that our body will develop in whatever range of motion we train it in. And so you can see these people in the gym sometimes who always do a short range of motion and they're at a point now where they can't straighten their elbows. <laughs> They've done so many bicep curls with a shorter range that their body has indicated, all right, I, shouldn't, I don't need to be in a fully extended position so it's permanently with bent elbows. And the same with their shoulders too. So whatever range of motion you train, your body will adapt to. So if you want full range of motion squats, if you want to keep fluidity in your movement, it behooves you to train in a full range of motion most of the time, if not um, all the time. That being said, you can also use partials to get you stronger. And so powerlifters use this a lot, particularly in their deadlift uh, and in their bench and in their squat, funnily enough, <laughs> squat dead bench. So let's take a bench press, for example. If there's an athlete that really struggles with the bottom half of their bench press, meaning maybe the first 
three inches of the bar coming off the chest, you can use partials to spend more time in that range of motion to progress it. So they could use, you know, paused reps, for example, with a one and a half rep range of motion. And so staying, so taking the weight off and then staying in the hardest part of the rep for them will get them stronger in it. Same with the squat, same with the deadlift. I like to do this with deadlifts a lot, where we just focus on the bottom half of the deadlift, which is where a lot of people really struggle with. And so if we spend more time in the, the range of motion that they're not strong in, they'll become stronger in it. And that's where partials can become a really important tool to support your function. So I suppose you could say that partials can help you with your full range of motion if you program them um, correctly. But team, if you know me, my rule of thumb is full range where possible. And a word on range on the squats as well. This is great. I don't have Jacob to cut me off, so my mind will go everywhere today, team. This is awesome. On your squats, right, a lot of people think, all right, I have to break parallel or I have to hit parallel at all costs. If I don't, that squat doesn't count. And I don't think that's quite true. That's the ideal. That's where we want to get to, a full grass squat with control, with great mobility, but most of us aren't there. And so for us to get there, we need to challenge that range of motion just a little bit, but stay in, stay in control of the bar. So I see a lot of people doing their squats, and to hit parallel, they lose tension. Their butt shoots back, their back arches, and then they sort of bounce out of the hole of the bottom of their squat to make themselves come up. But they're not really helping themselves there because they're losing tension at the bottom and they're allowing your momentum and their joints to get them back up. Rather, I would like them just to go to a depth that they can control and then challenge that depth just a little bit, even if that means you're not, your hips aren't moving in line with your knees. So I suppose partials in that sense can also help you gain full range of motion. We should always be in control of the bar or the dumbbell or the kettlebell, unless it's a... Um, no, we should always be in control of it, absolutely. And that means working within the range that you can control in and then challenging that range to get full range of motion down the track. <clears throat> Question number three. <laughs> Do you have any tips on sticking to a diet? <clears throat> I do. And... um the first red flag here is for this for this member is if you're struggling to stick on a diet, it's probably not the best for you. The um this whole idea of the diet breeds this on the wagon, off the wagon connotation and mindset. If I'm on a diet, I'm doing good things. If I'm off a diet, I'm doing bad things. And what I sort of want you to do is wash wash that board, shake that etch a sketch to make it nice and clear again, and relook at your nutrition, and then approach it from a habit a habit based point of view. So for those that do want to help um, help themselves stick to a habit or build a habit by sticking to a diet or a change, um, here's what I have for you. The first is learn how to cook. My wife is the best person in the world, totally, totally objective viewpoint here. But what she has done with some of the healthiest foods has made them the most delicious things, so much so that she's ruined every other, <laughs> every other non-food that she cooks for me. But what she's done is essentially working within the realm of whole foods to make that food delicious. And so for us, sticking to the way that we eat is really easy because that's the only food that we want. Now, if you're a self-professed bad cook, my recommendation is to learn. You have the rest of your life to practice. So if we start learning how to cook healthy food now, it just makes everything so much easier, team. Trust me here. Expand your repertoire, look at different recipes, and stay within whole foods. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're wanting to eat these foods. 
and you're not wanting to eat other foods as a um, as a byproduct. So my first tip is that learn how to cook. I know what you're thinking. I'm not a cook. I'll never be a good cook. Trust me. You have to eat for the rest of your life. You can't just spend the rest of your life outsourcing food, hoping other people will cook for you or cooking horrible food. Simply just learn how to cook good food and you'll see a real power in that. And there's a very esoteric relationship between you expending energy energy, and giving time and to create the nutrition that will make you. Remember, you are what you eat. And if you give time into that process, there's a beautiful exchange of energy and spirituality there, which I, I assume you didn't think that would be the answer to that question. Um, and the other thing I want you to think about is the habit change continuum. And so I talk about this a bit, but it's so poignant. The way we think affects the way we feel. The way we feel affects our behaviours and our habits and our behaviours and our habits give us the results that we want. And so for some, for, for a lot of people, it's all about changing the way that you think about food. If we think about food from a nourishment point of view and we start to enjoy the process of cooking, all of a sudden we feel different. And then I want you to note how good you feel when you eat this good food. If you fall in love with that feeling, you'll never want to eat a bad food again. That's where I'm at at this point in my journey. I've, I've had a lot of reps under my belt and you know I've had a lot of bad things happen in my life that have made me understand the perspective of nutrition and the power of nutrition. But I'm at a point now where I don't want to eat the... I know it's delicious. I know the other food is delicious, the, the fast food, the processed food. Absolutely it is and I eat it every now and then, absolutely. But I don't like the way it makes me feel. The, the food that I cook and my wife cooks is so wholesome, so nutritious, and so within our macronutrient require and micronutrient requirements that I don't want to eat anything else. And that's where I want you to be. I want you to be at that point where you're at a party or whatever and they're dishing out cupcakes and you say, oh, I can't, you don't say I can't have that, but you say, hey, I don't want that because that is going to make me feel rubbish later and probably rubbish tomorrow from that sugar hangover. So tips on sticking to a diet, reframe what the diet is for you and start slow, start with your habits. And then remember the way you think affects the way you feel. Fall in love with the feeling of nutrition, but sometimes that might think that might start with you thinking a different way and learn how to cook. <laughs> Full stop. Mum would be very proud. <clears throat> what are the best, this is question four, what are the best carbohydrate sources? <laughs> carbohydrates it always rears its head and for those that are sort of really um sweating over this over how much carbs am i eating carbs make me fat remember carbs don't make you fat carbs are very good for you if you choose the right ones and in fact carbs can can go a long way into getting you the physique or performance goal that you want by sticking to whole food carbohydrates which is what i'm going to recommend um, as an answer to this question and so we'll go through some specifics in a second but take into, your di- take into account your digestion. And so we know some people are intolerant to foods, some people have allergies to foods. And so start connecting your, how your gut feels after you eat, just in case there is something that, that you're intolerant to. It doesn't make you feel good. If you eat something and your gut's a bit off and your, you know, your, um, your digestive system is a bit off um, and your poops are a little bit off as well, something you ate most likely, or some stress or other factors, um, isn't agreeing with you. And so the best carbohydrates for you are the ones that you can digest properly and efficiently and are whole food-based. So take into account the digestion of the food first. Well, the reason why we go for whole food sources is because our body has evolved 
to digest these foods. With whole food carbohydrates, you're not just getting carbs. You're getting fiber, a lot of fiber. You're getting micronutrients. Um, you're getting some fatty acids, a little bit in some of them, not much, but they're in there. And putting all of these constituents together to create this whole food means our body will digest it better in most cases. And so my go-tos are potatoes. We actually cooked up um, Hawaiian sweet potatoes on the weekend. They're the purple flesh ones. If you watch that documentary, on, it's a new documentary on Netflix. It's called Living to 100 or to something to do with 100. It's, it's about the, the blue zones and the centenarians. Um, the Okinawan centenarians eat a lot of purple sweet potato. And I, I love it. It's delicious. So we saw it in the supermarket the other day and bought a heap of it and roasted it up. So that's going to be my main carbohydrate source for this week. I'm going to live to 100 because I'm eating purple potatoes. So I love potatoes uh, and I vary them. And here's a good thing as well, team, with everything I'm going to go through today, make sure you do get varied sources. We want to make sure we're getting an array of different fibre types, different carbohydrate types, different micronutrient types. And the only way we do that is we, if we have variety in the foods that we eat. So potatoes, rice, look, I don't mind what rice. If, if you're eating white rice every single day, <clears throat> that may you know may play with your blood sugar a little bit, but it depends how you're eating it, what you're eating it with. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be too worried. Brown rice, red rice, green rice, rice. Full stop. I'm a big. I've written oast, oats. I'm a big fan of oats. Every morning I'll have about 100 grams of oats in my smoothie, or I'll make a porridge. I seem to digest them very well. Some people don't, and that's absolutely fine. But if you do digest oats really well, they are. I reckon they are a superfood, right? They contain some very beneficial uh, fibers. Um, uh, they also contain a lot of protein, plant-based protein from oats. And, of course, um, some slow, low GI carbohydrates too. Um, I think they're awesome. And, in fact, if I ever, if I'm ever stuck in a situation, if I'm traveling or something, I'll often just get some oats, put some boiling water in it, put a scoop of protein powder in there, get some peanut butter, and there's a beautifully balanced meal. You know, not the best because you're on the road, but... They provide a great source and the fiber as well. Um, and other whole grains too. Like a lot of people go for quinoa and amaranth, which is, which is an ancient grain too. Um, even whole wheat. Look, with, with wheat, um, if, if you are, <laughs> the funny, here's the funny thing about wheat, right? If you go to a wheat plant in the ground and you try and eat it, you can't. That stuff will shred your insides. So for us to be able to digest wheat, wheat the same, same a, bit, a bit like oats as well. Have you ever tried just to eat steel-cut oats without cooking them? Impossible. So they need some processing to them. So I, I always go for the most minimally processed grain if I can. And with, um, with wheat, which is what I'm talking about, um, I, I try to go organic. I try to go as, as little of chemicals as possible in terms of pesticides and herbicides, which is, which is hard sometimes. Um, and a word on bread as well, which is wheat, funnily enough. <clears throat> we, we eat a bit of bread in our household, but the only bread we eat is sourdough, a, a slow-fermented, locally-made sourdough. Um, my wife is a little bit gluten intolerant. She can have a little bit, but she, if she has too much, she knows about it. And I think a lot of people are in that, bo- in that boat. But the sourdough t- seems to break down the gluten a little bit, pre-digest the gluten, so we can eat a little bit more of that without having any deleterious effects. Uh, it's outrageously expensive, but we don't eat too much of it. So the bread that we do eat is sourdough. I would stay away from the, the highly processed breads that are in the in the aisles of the supermarket. Bread should go stale in two or three days. It, it should. It shouldn't be able to sit on a shelf for weeks on end. So even if you go to the bakery section of Woolies or Coles and get one of their sourdoughs, I think that's a better option than going for Tip Top or Wonder White. 
um, highly processed, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's enough about carbohydrates. Question number five. <clears throat> I feel like I run out of steam during my workouts. Is there something I can do to lift heavier for longer? Oh, yes, there is. I love this question. I've had a few clients that have been in this situation before. They have programmed maybe five or six exercises. They do the first two and they are gassed. They are dusted. So the last three exercises are purely just symbolic to get through the workout, which is good. You know, that they're doing the work, but it could be better. And so there are a number of things. There could be a number of things at play here. The first is that you're attacking the first few exercises too hard. So remember, a lot of the gains that you get, particularly from lifting, happen sub-maximally. So we don't need to absolutely blow the chassis off ourselves with every set. So if you're training to failure every set, my recommendation is to stick around the two reps in reserve. So I want you to work to a point where your technique maybe just starts to break down and then stop. I don't want you to go to absolute failure. Save that for another training phase later. If we go to failure every time, we are literally destroying ourselves every set. And we don't need to do that to change and to adapt. If we do do that every set, we're just making our recovery more, more, essentially. We don't need to do that much damage to shoot for adaptation, all right? So note that first. The second thing is you could have some stamina issues. It could be purely a case of training your body to take on more load. And there's two main ways I like to do this if we stick in, into the, the weightlifting realm. The first is to play with, with EMOMs. And I know, don't, don't hold it against me, Functional Fitness CrossFit, how dare you do an EMOM. But I think EMOMs, particularly E2MOMs, are some really great strategies for gaining strength. And the way this might work is if you get your deadlift, you know, you've got um, five, let's say six sets. All you have to do is every two minutes, do a set. So at the start of the two minutes, you do six reps, you rest the remainder of the two minutes, then you do another one. So this way you're, you're, you're dictating or you're making sure you have consistent rest periods and you're training consistent capacity. And then what you can then do is do 90 seconds, do a set on every 90 seconds and try and hold the same weight across all sets. Um, and then you can go down to a minute if you want to, but you might be sort of, um, it'll, it'll hamper how much weight you can lift at, at that point. So that's a great way to build lifting capacity, but it also might be of benefit to you to do some cardio. I know, cardio. Look, team, cardio doesn't ruin your gains. Bad programming ruins your gains. And so what I've done very successfully with a few powerlifters in the past is get them to do some zone two trainings. This is low intensity, 20 to 45 minutes, once or twice a week. All we're trying to do here is get them to use their aerobic energy system a lot more. For those that just lift weights, you're sticking with this very very high force output, alactic, anaerobic energy system, which is great, has some great benefits. But sometimes we need to look at the other end of the energy system spectrum to help us potentiate what we're trying to do. And what zone two cardio does, remember low intensity here, um, look up zone two and you'll see, that it depends what, what sort of um, ratio you're using, but there's five to seven zones. Um, and in this zone, you're primarily using oxygen and fat as a fuel. We're not doing it to burn calories. We're doing it to make our energy, our, um, uh, our oxygen, oxygenation system a lot more efficient. So if we spend time in this energy system, we're building mitochondrial density, we're building capillary density so that oxygen can travel to our muscles more efficiently and more effectively. 
what this will mean is that you'll this will translate into more stamina in your workouts. It'll translate into faster rest, less rest periods. You'll recover faster, and you'll also recover faster between workouts. This balanced way of approaching is called integrated training, and it's something I'm very passionate about. So that might be of go to you too. So if you're running out of steam sort of halfway through your workout, either do some capacity work with the lifts you're already doing, um, or even on the on the ergs if you wanted to, or try some aerobic training. And it might just start with a walk and then maybe a, a tick over on the bike for 20 minutes once a week. And um, I'm sure you'll see some difference just because of that. <clears throat> Question numero sei, which is six in Italian. <coughs> what is the best grip for deadlifts? Full stop. So when, when we deadlift, we conventionally go overhand, meaning we, we just grab the handles as our hands sit with our farm, palms facing us. As we go a bit heavier, a lot of people like to turn one hand up, so the palms facing upwards. This is what you call a mixed grip. And every now and then I see someone try and do a double underhand grip for a deadlift. At that point I tell them, hey, stop, because I've seen a lot of, a lot of videos of bicep tendon tendons tearing because of it. So really the conventional double overhand or mixed grip is what most people use. And so my advice is if you do use a mixed grip, it does help you lift a bit more weight. I use a mixed grip quite, quite often. Um, if you do use a mixed grip, try and make sure you're swapping hands. So there'll be one hand that always wants to go under and one hand that always wants to go over. Make sure you're trying to balance it off because particularly if you're lifting weights, that will create an imbalance. And even though if you've been doing it for a while um, and you go to change your hand and you're like, oh, this feels like an entirely different exercise, great. Hey, do a few sets trying to balance it off and then build your weight up to make it more comfortable, make it more um, more, more comfortable for you, right? But here's the gold standard, I think. A snatch grip. Wait, no, hook grip, not a snatch grip. Snatch grip, that is a different exercise. A hook grip. So this is taking from what Olympic weightlifters do. This is where you wrap your hands around the bar, double overhand, so conventional grip, but you're wrapping your thumb first and then wrapping your fingers around your thumb. So your fingers are on top of your thumb, hopefully the first two fingers or at least the first finger. This provides a grip that is like superhuman. Again, it's a skill you have to learn, so don't think that you're going to get it first off. But this will allow you to lift heavy weight without having to do an underhand or mixed grip. So practice it, I reckon, the snatch grip. So you'll have to take some weight off first. It'll feel uncomfortable. But once you develop the snatch grip, you won't go back. So I reckon that is the best grip, in my opinion, for um, for conventional deadlifts anyway. But you can use them all. And then number seven. Uh, what's the difference between the coloured plates and the non-coloured plates in my gym? You know what, this is a great question because if you if you live and breathe a gym like I do, these are questions that you don't often ask yourself, but for someone who comes into a gym doesn't know what the place is, yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it? So the, um, the coloured plates are what we call bumper plates. Traditionally, they're there to protect the bar and to protect the floor. And so you'll see a lot of Olympic lifters, when they do a snatch or a clean and jerk over their head, they'll just drop the weight. And so these bumper plates, the rubber ones, some of them are really bouncy and you shouldn't drop them off your head, but the ones we have in our, um, in our Jets gyms aren't. Um, they're just there to protect the bar and protect the floor. So anything, any heavy lifting from the floor or, or um, any lifting where you might drop the bar, like a squat, will use bumper plates. The, um, the other plates are called polyurethane plates, and these are just more, um, more for machines, I suppose. 
um, or squatting or overhead pressing where you know you're not going to fail. They don't need to for- they don't need to be fortified because they're not really being used on bars. They're being used on machines, um, uh, and they don't really need to protect the slab or the bar. So they just they just weights essentially. So the non-coloured plates of polyurethane, we use them for machines and some barbell exercises. The bumper plates are primarily used for powerlifting um, and functional fitness in a way too. If you're doing cleans or if you're doing you know, sumo deadlift high pulls, anything from the floor to protect the bar where it might be dropped or protect the slab where it might be dropped as well. That's why we use bumper plates. Bumper plates also look really cool. So if you're lifting, use, use bumper plates if you want to look a bit better. Ah, so team, that's uh, that's the episode for today. That was actually um, <clears throat> a lot of fun. I was feeling a bit lonely at the start of this episode, but not having Jacob here um, has proven to me that I can do it by myself. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, that's enough. Team, if you enjoyed this episode, have a listen to the others. I like to think of this podcast as every week you put another piece of the puzzle together. You're painting this fitness picture for you, and that's exactly exactly why we're here next week we're doing part three of a three-part series for beginners we're going to have a look at a beginner's guide to recovery so if you are a beginner and you are new have a listen to that episode as well as the other beginners episode to start you off on the right foot if you're not already follow the show share the show get around us on social media we're jets australia j-e-t-t-s on all the shows of social pipes and i'll see you next week for a beginner's guide to recovery. Peace.